Today, we're going to start the conversation with Stefan Battery, co-founder and CEO of Booksy. I met Stefan a little while back, and we did an entrepreneur journey story on his, um, his journey. And uh, I found it fascinating and, and enlightening, and I invited him back to talk with us at the roundtable here today. You, I expect that you're going to learn a lot. So uh, welcome, Stefan. Great to see you again. Welcome, Sarmana. Great to, great to be here. All right. So um, I'm going to focus on a few different pieces of um, your journey and try to highlight some important elements that you have um, you know, practiced that are strategic and, and principles that we actually teach quite um, you know, regularly in our program. So the first one is you bootstrapped a company, a, you know, a marketplace company with a services business first. So could you talk about your services business? What was it? How, was, how did you do it? You were doing this from Poland. So talk about what, what was the uh, environment in Poland at the time so we can get a feel for the beginning of your journey. Of course. So uh, Poland is famous for having one of the you know, best um, education system. And we have some of the world's finest developers uh, alongside India, uh, Russia. So Polish developers are always ranked in top three uh, in various competitions ran by Google or Facebook or uh, universities. And uh, my first business was just a software development house. And we built custom software for various clients around the globe. We worked for clients here in the US, in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, Australia, and all over Europe. But mm -hmm. what I realized uh, was that this model wasn't really scalable because to double our revenue, we pretty much had to double our headcount. And year right. after year for 12 consecutive years, the company uh, had been growing uh, two to three X every single year. Deloitte put us on the list of the fastest growing companies in Europe, Middle East and Africa. But it was very growing because recruiting so many developers every single year, it was just scary. And at some point I started looking at different business models, wondering if, you know, if I can leverage great developers that we had in Poland and, and great talent uh, with a model that was more scalable. So that's how I transitioned from running a service business into a SaaS led marketplace, which is Booksy. And um, just a couple of questions about the services business. How big mm -hmm. did it get? How many people, what kind of revenue levels mm -hmm. did you get to before you uh, switched to Booksy? So uh, I had over 200 developers when I left the company and we had over $10 million revenue. Okay. And um, tell me a little bit about, you said you left the company, your partner from the services company continued running the services company. What kind of a deal did you do when you left? Your shares were still there. Did you sell your shares? What was the transaction? Mm -hmm. So um, that company had a subsidiary, actually two subsidiaries. One was a right-hailing app, iTaxi, which is the leading right-hailing app in Poland. 
And then there was um, um, a part of that business that was a spin-off that was also a service business. So basically we split the company and uh, I got those two subsidiaries and part of my shares, I still, you know, um, hold shares in, in, in that primary company, but uh, I took over those two smaller companies or subsidiaries. And Booksy is a spin-off of, of the other one uh, because that company worked for uh, so-called classified media uh, newspapers, local uh, community newspapers that uh, helped local businesses to advertise um, and people to trade and buy and, and, and sell different stuff like um, cars, like, you know, pets. Mm -hmm. And one of their biggest category were services, home services, professional services, uh, and personal services. So at first, uh, when we started thinking about Booksy, uh, it was supposed to be a white label solution for those classified media providers uh, to address their need to build a mobile product for local services. And mm -hmm. I came up with that idea when preparing for Marathon de Sabu, which is the toughest food race, food race on earth, six back-to-back -back marathons across Sahara Desert in self-sufficiency formula. And as I was ramping up my mileage for that race, I had an issue scheduling appointments with my physiotherapist. I couldn't get hold of him. And whenever I tried to call him, he was busy working with his hands. So he couldn't uh, take my calls. And I had the need, he wanted to make money. He had availability, but I didn't know that he had that availability. So I started thinking how to solve my very own problem and also his problem. And then I realized that pretty much everybody who works with their hands, whether they paint somebody's nails or they cut hair or they give somebody a massage, they work with their hands and they are not able to take calls. And then I connected the dots with, with uh, uh, the local services as a broader category that, you know, we, we could also include plumbers and roofers and handymen and a and lot, lot of other verticals. But as we started analyzing the market, we, we had that feeling that it was too broad of an approach and that, you know, to build something uh, big and to be great at something, you have to focus. You cannot do everything. So we decided to double down on hair and beauty as our uh, wedge to, to win that market of local services. Very interesting. So uh, folks, those of you who are listening, I want to highlight a couple of nuggets in what uh, Stefan has said so far. This model of building a services company and then incubating product ideas or marketplace ideas or e-commerce ideas or SaaS ideas within a services company is a tried and true approach. So as you know, we, we pro promote and espouse the bootstrapping using services strategy very, very heavily. It's a tried and true strategy. We know entrepreneur after entrepreneur who have succeeded with this model. So we like this model. We uh, see great potential in this model. And uh, there's you know, huge technical talent out there who are you know, capable of building, uh, you know, tinkering, experimenting with different ideas. And I think this is a very, very interesting story that Stefan is telling us of tinkering with some ideas and then really validating the market to get to a product market fit situation, which is in this case, scheduling software 
as it pertains to hair and beauty, local services, hair and beauty. So, Stefan, let's talk about that phase of your journey. You now have product market fit. You've decided to go into the hair and beauty market with this scheduling software. What happens next? Well, we bootstrapped the company, we, we built the product, but uh, the revenue the software uh, company was generating, it was barely enough to, to build the product and to maintain the product team, but we didn't really have money uh, for acquisition. So we decided to raise a round and that's when we spin off uh, Booksy as a separate entity to get funded. And we raised mm -hmm. our seed round in literally, that was the last day of July, 2015 um got got the money and started hiring people here in the us and in poland as our initial two markets where we launched uh booksy and um it was a lot of trials and error because errors because we didn't really know how to sell it uh both conrad mm -hmm. and i conrad is my co-founder and partner like we knew how to build software we knew how to how to market that software, but we had no experience with field sales, with telesales. So it took us a few months to figure out um, the whole process. We knew we had product market fit because at the time we had, I think, nearly 100 service providers using us. So they validated the idea and that allowed us to, to raise that seed round. But uh, the next phase was basically learning how to build a sales team, how to scale that up, how to manage the team uh, and then the next step as as the company started growing was how to build you know structures how to you know build that management team that would help conrad and myself to manage this growing company so i will spend some time talking about your financing strategy in a bit but let's first talk about um how did you sell the product what was the go-to-market strategy that you settled on that actually worked um it was a lot of trials and errors in in the very first uh few months it was me who actually visited salons and i was selling by myself i have this strong conviction that before you actually hire sales guys or a sales director because a lot of founders a lot of entrepreneurs they they don't know how to sell so they are hoping that you know when somebody from the outside with sales experience comes on board they are magically gonna solve all all of their problems but the the issue is that um a lot of these sales guys they are professionals but they don't understand the product that you build they don't understand the market as well as you did so even if you are not as effective the they don't have the patience yeah. to experiment they want exactly. you to figure out how to sell what yeah. message will work? What is this go-to-market strategy? And yeah. then they will come and scale that. They will come to the rescue of Vectri. They don't have the patience to figure out how to sell. Absolutely. You, you just nailed it. And then, you know, there is different sales approaches and there is different sales talent out in the market. So before you hire people, you need to know, you know, what kind of a sales process is it? Is it like more of transactional sales or is it more relationship building? Like how, how, uh long or how short is the sales cycle so that that's that's all that we figured out figured out on our own and even though i was not as efficient as i could have been if i you know if i were a great sales rep i think that was a very valuable lesson and that gave me even more conviction and and the whole team uh that we really have product market fit and it's only you know 
fine tuning some some of the details, fine tuning the sales processes, and hiring the right people to do that. But that was crucial that we were able to uh, to learn how to sell on our own before we started hiring people. And what was the conclusion? Were you selling by phone? Were you you know you doing Google AdWords and basically uh -huh. self service selling on the internet? How were you selling? That's a great question. Actually, we had two different conclusions in these two markets. So in Poland, we decided to launch field sales because online advertising didn't work for us. And in the US, we uh, we went with online advertising and then uh, telesales um, that, that basically worked uh, with the leads we acquired online. So these were two distinct strategies. Um, and back then, I was unhappy with that because I was hoping that we could have figured out, you know, uh, a common, a common model across different markets. As we started launching new market, more markets, it was a problem. And at some point I was even willing to pull out of the field sales model because it's always more headache, it's more hassle and it's more expensive to hire field sales. Uh, but that actually led us to another discovery and that was serendipity but uh with online sales we were spread across all of the us and other markets that we launched afterwards but with field sales in poland what we learned is that because field sales actually focused on hyper local markets we discovered that uh we started building local liquidity we started benefiting from network effects and that made us aware that we were not in a pure SaaS business, but actually we were in a SaaS-led marketplace business because that helped us to discover the benefits of network effects and, and how to start this flywheel. Um, and in order to do that, you need to be focused on hyper-local markets. So that was a learning that later on we applied to other markets. This is a very interesting point that Stefan is making, and let me actually explain a bit more of what he's talking about. So this is a trend that we're seeing a lot. We call it SaaS-enabled marketplace. So you go into a customer base with a SaaS product. So in this case, it's scheduling software for the hair and beauty industry, hyper-local. And as you start you know, having these uh, companies bring on their clients onto your product, there's a large number of consumers who are interacting with your system and so forth. So you're building a large consumer base of users of your product. So at some point, these the network effects, the economies of scale take over, and you have a very large consumer base and you have a large number of small businesses looking for clients, so you could also create a marketplace. So this is one of the strategies we see a lot uh, these days, especially in various vertical marketplaces where you start with a software, software as a service product, build a clientele of the software as a service product, and then at the right moment, flip that into a SaaS-enabled marketplace. So you have subscription revenue, and then you also start generating transaction revenue because the marketplace effect also starts to kick in. And that is one of the classic um, you know, textbook case studies that Booksy has done is, is transformed from a SaaS company 
to a SaaS-enabled marketplace company. So, Stefan, in that transition, um, I want to ask, do you, did you make that transition based on just the hair and beauty industry, or were you already in other marketplaces or, or other uh, market segments as a SaaS company before making that transition? It was pure hair and beauty. At that hair time, beauty. we were focusing on, on this one vertical because even within hair and beauty, you have a lot of sub-verticals and in order to cover them all, like at first glance, they all look very similar, but when you dig in, you realize that there is a lot of differences between barbers and hairstylists and nail technicians and brows and lashes and braids and so on and so forth. So we didn't want to expand and go beyond because we felt we still had a lot of work to do within hair and beauty vertical. But what happened uh, about 18 months ago uh, in Poland, which is our most mature market right now, is that we had so many consumers using Booksy that some of these consumers, they started signing up with us as service providers in other verticals. So, you know, a guy that used Booksy to book his barber appointments, you know, he signed up with us because he owned a car garage or car workshop. And he thought, you mm -hmm. know, Booksy could be a great way for him to schedule his clients. Uh, we Hi. had some re retail stores, especially during the pandemic and lockdowns and post lockdowns, yeah. like, you know, people were looking for tools to uh, schedule their clients uh, instead of having them queuing in front of their stores. So we had a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, different verticals and, and different businesses. We had never expected uh, to use Booksy uh, coming on board, including some banks and insurance companies and telcos. So, so today Booksy is a marketplace for uh, all appointments in Poland. Very interesting. And geographically, though, you started expanding very quickly. You were doing U.S. and Poland, but you started adding more markets uh -huh. fairly quickly. Yeah, and that was a big mistake because after the U.S. and Poland, we raised another seed round because we were successful in these two markets. And we had thought like, wow, we are doing so good. We should expand. And we launched eight other markets, including India and the Philippines and Singapore and Brazil and Argentina, South Africa, the UK and Ireland. And uh, a few months down the road, we realized that we were too stretched, um, you know, uh, too thin across all of these markets. And we were also too young of a company. We had immature processes. Uh, the management team was still fairly uh, junior, and we didn't know how to manage all, all these 10 markets. We didn't know how to replicate best practices. In fact, we didn't have best practices. We just replicated yeah. all, the all the bad practices <laughs> from Poland. And, the, and, and, and each of these markets operate differently. I mean, how customer acquisition in the U.S. and customer acquisition in India is very, very different. Absolutely. Especially Absolutely. SMB customer acquisition in India is a very different ballgame. So that was you probably... You shut down some of those markets eventually. Yeah, eventually we shut down four of them and put South Africa into a kind of a freeze or sleep mode. And we decided to double down on, on five markets that were growing the strongest. And that was definitely the right move. From the hindsight, I'm actually thinking that we should have been more um, uh, aggressive and maybe we should we should you know freeze to other markets and just focus on the us the uk and poland 
uh, and maybe restart them now as we are literally doing it as we speak right now. So we are now hiring more people in South Africa and Brazil, but uh, we, we, you know, uh, that's easy, easy to see from the hindsight, but back then we had that ambition to become the global leader and we thought the more the better, which was a mistake. So, um, now, with the current situation, the current market, when we spoke, I, I can't remember exactly when we spoke, but you were already doing like 100 million uh, revenue, right? Revenue-wise, we are not there yet, but the value of services, GMB, it's already over $2.3 billion as of end of April. So that's a quite sizable business. Now, how does your business split in subscription revenue versus transaction GMB revenue? Mm -hmm. That depends on the market and its maturity. So in our most mature markets, and now I'm referring to cities, not even to countries. So our most mature markets uh, yield twice as much marketplace revenue as subscription. So it's two to one or, you know, 60, 70% coming from marketplace and less than 40% coming from subscription. In our youngest markets, uh, it's even 100% subscription because we don't really launch that marketplace until yeah, we see we have cool. enough liquidity. So overall, it's like 25 uh, on blended basis across all the markets. 25% comes from our marketplace and 75 still comes from the subscription. But fast forward to two years from now, we are expecting uh, to have way more revenue from the marketplace than subscription across all the markets. Marketplace is a more scalable model eventually, but you know, this is one of the questions we get a lot is how do you seed a vertical marketplace, a two-sided marketplace? And, and my answer to that is one of the best ways to seed a two-sided marketplace is with the SaaS-enabled marketplace model where you figure out the requirements of one side of the marketplace, provide a software to meet those, maybe even provide software to both sides of the marketplace, bring them together, and then uh, create the marketplace on top of that. So, so this is quite brilliant. Um, Stefan, what is your marketplace commission? Is it 10%? Um, that's anywhere between 30 and 50%, but we charge for bringing new, new clients only. So this is one time commission. We never well, charge for returning clients. So I, assuming that a client is going to return and they are going to visit that, uh, salon, let's say five I times, see. you know, we are kind of taking that money upfront instead of spreading that across subsequent visits. And the reason we are doing that is to uh, not to incentivize salons uh, to poach the clients uh, because you know they feel that you know they they have no no incentive to poach the clients and disintermediate right. if they paid upfront and so it's, it's still actually, a pretty good. It's a bit more of a lead generation business model as opposed to a pure marketplace business model. The marketplace business model is more commission on the full transaction volume. Yeah, yeah, got it. Very good. Switching uh, tracks a little bit, I want to spend some time on your financing strategy. You have raised money in Europe and you have raised money in, in the US. So let's start with the very early stage financing. You raised an angel round in Poland. So talk about that. What was your experience? Um, and you know, what are some of the salient points of that particular fundraising? 
Um, I decided to take shortcut shortcuts because I uh, I was like well connected in Poland. I knew people. I you know I had had been entrepreneur with uh, a solid track record. I IPO'd my my first um, software company, so people trusted me, and it was fairly easy to raise that seed round in Poland. But uh, from the hindsight, I'm seeing that as a mistake uh, because we should have moved the company and started fundraising in the US as early as possible because once you raise money in Europe and then you want to raise your B round in the US, like there is no connecting tissue. Like a lot of investors I, I spoke with, like none of them uh, has already told me that uh, directly, but when I back channeled, uh, through people that, that connected me with these investors. Like I've heard like a lot of, um, uh, a lot of answers that back then seemed like unjust to me, like, oh, I don't know any of his investors. This is a great business. I love the attraction, but if I'm going to be, you know, if I'm going to lead the next round and I don't know what it's like to work with these guys, I'm risking that, you know, they will vote me and I won't, I won't have anything to say. Like, so a lot of US investors didn't want to invest into a company that was run by a random guy from Poland with some random investors from Europe and they didn't know anything about me or anything about uh, our early stage investors. So that so was probably... I will make one comment, though, for people who are listening to you and, and learning from this conversation. Um, you are not a first-time entrepreneur. So um, I, I imagine that even if you, as a non-first-time entrepreneur who has had track record, even in Poland, you come into the U.S., you have a shot at raising money. But it's not that easy for a first-time entrepreneur out of Poland or you know, Ukraine or Hungary or, or even France to just, just land in the U.S. and raise an angel round. That is not so easy. So, so I, I, I'm going to actually say that this, you know, conclusion that you are coming to is, is a little bit, you know, to be taken with some, um, some more analysis because as a first-time entrepreneur trying to raise an angel round, it may not be such a bad idea to raise money in um, in your local European geography just because you don't have the option to just land. Unless you've bootstrapped yourself to a level of validation where U.S. In investors feel comfortable being your first check-in. But if you need... You know, if you're early, even if you're bootstrapped to a certain level of validation, but it's still very early, that you may not have an option but to work with a European investor. And by the way, folks, this is a very different scenario when you look at the India-U.S. corridor. The India-U.S. corridor is very well connected. It's not like the European corridor with the U.S. The Europe to Silicon Valley bridge is a lot weaker than the India to Silicon Valley bridge. India-Silicon Valley bridge is solid. You can raise money in India as much as you want to, and then come into the U.S. and you will be very—you will be able to find very good bridges, uh, regardless of where you raise your first round. So those are—that's just commentary to kind of embellish the, 
you know, learning from your journey. So let's talk now about when you raised money in the U.S., um, what else did you learn in that process as a European company? Um, that's a very good question. Um, you know, one, one thing I've learned is that uh, you should be very selective who you want to go to because at first I was just like kind of blind shooting and going after random investors. And, yeah. and again, like, you know, now when I look at that from the hindsight, it totally didn't make sense because it's hard for any investor to understand a space they've never been in, like they've never invested into. So it's like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. So I, I met with a lot of investors that are super smart and I expected them to understand our business model, which is not that easy when you, you know, look under the hood and look at all the wiring, like there is a lot of levers that we have and yeah. a lot of investors, like they didn't get it. And I was quite surprised because I thought, wow, these are like super smart guys, like post Harvard, post Stanford, uh, with MBAs, they invested into some great companies, some, why they are not getting it. And what I've learned yeah. is that, you know, being an investor, it's about pattern recognition. So, and they specialize. So if somebody has never done uh, SaaS-led marketplaces and you pitch the model to them and you tell them like, right now we are just, you know, doing land grabbing and, you know, the, the average revenue per, per provider is low, but as soon as we build liquidity, it's going to be higher. Like if they haven't seen that model working, like they don't believe you. So yeah. it was very but important and, and to go. To be fair, when you went to do this fundraising round, the SaaS enabled marketplace most model was not yet that, that prevalent. It has become more prevalent since. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a bit more understanding of that model, but at the time, there's a lot of timing. The minute you're innovating, you're bringing new things to the table. So. There are certain investors who are very, very good at grasping innovation and grasping something new and something different they can extrapolate. And then there, there are other, and the vast majority of investors fall in this category. They're just looking for pattern matchings. And, and um, mm -hmm. that's where I think you would, uh, you know, if you are following my work, folks, uh, you have heard me say this over and over again. Just like you're looking for product market fit, look for investor entrepreneur fit. Investor entrepreneur fit has to do with geography, has to do with business sector, has to do with business model, has to do with stage, has to do with, you know, style of investing. There's a whole bunch of parameters in investor entrepreneur fit that you need to also pay attention to before you can raise a successful venture round. So what Stefan is saying is very, very important, and I want to underscore what he's saying. Please internalize this point that if you want to raise money, investor and entrepreneur fit is your mantra. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to close around. Couldn't agree more All right. with that. So um, how are things now in Poland? Have, uh, you know, have this ecosystem matured quite a lot? Yeah, I, I think the ecosystem in Poland has made tremendous progress in the past couple of years. 
there is a lot of new uh, funds and they have amazing investment portfolios and they started investing across Europe and they are also making some investments in the US and they are learning very fast because they are co-investing with funds like Andreessen Horowitz, Inside Ventures, uh, yeah. with the Index Ventures. So, the bridge is being yeah. built, which is great. Exactly. And uh, what about the entrepreneur side? How many entrepreneurs, how many startups are operating in Poland right now? Do you have a sense? I think it's, you know, a few thousand and there is probably a couple hundred like really good companies. Um, the, the ecosystem is still young, but, you know, on the backs of companies like Booksy or Dog Planner or Brainly, there are some ex-employees of those three companies. They are starting their own startups and they've learned yeah. with us. They, they've seen how we did it. And I think, you know, there was that glass ceiling in Poland for many, many years, like people did not believe that you can build a global uh, startup out of Poland. But as there is more and more successful examples, more people believe that they can do that. They they work at these companies and they get the courage, they get the conviction and, and, and there is more companies starting every single quarter than ever before. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that both the ecosystem is gonna uh, flourish in the coming years and there is a much stronger bridge going to be built between uh, different ecosystems. Fantastic. Well, congratulations, Stefan. You've done a wonderful job with Booksy. And, and you know, your story is, is very encouraging for these millions of technical people, you know, people who don't have a business background but come out of the, you know, depths of technical knowledge and, and expertise and have learned the business side. I'm a big believer that people who have a technical background and have worked seriously in tech can learn the business side. And we've seen this over and over and over again. I actually myself, I do not have a business degree. You know, people think I went to Sloan uh, at MIT. I didn't. I'm a computer scientist. I'm a hardcore computer scientist. I was, you know, I was working on the first uh, one of the two first parallel computing projects at MIT, uh, you know, I I've done very serious technology work, and and uh, I learned everything else as I went along on the job. So my first job out of grad school, or while at grad school, was a CEO job because I started a company. So I'm a huge believer in technology people, technical people being able to learn whatever you need to learn about business. And one million by one million is a perfect place for you to learn that because we have structured the whole program with that in mind that you can learn and, and we are going to learn you bit by bit by bit. We're gonna you know help you learn that and, and teach you all of the pieces that you need to learn. So Stefan, you're a textbook example of my mantra. Thank you. Um, and I'm I'm proud to be part of that program. If I only help one entrepreneur today. Uh, who, who listened to our conversation, uh, I'm going to be fulfilled. You did because we have a, actually one and by one and premium member company that is trying to launch a marketplace and I just talked to them yesterday and they're here listening to you and I talked about SaaS enabled marketplaces to them. So I'm sure they're, uh, Jill and Ricky Howard are listening and I'm sure you are getting a feel for what we are talking about here. So they're, uh, they're not technical but they're learning the business model that we are talking about and how to build, 
how to see the SaaS enabled marketplace business. So perfect. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you for having me.